Good morning. It, uh, it is so good to finally be here uh, with you all. I, these past couple months, at least for, for me, have felt like they've kind of drug on in the, in the anticipation of coming, and, and now we're finally here. Uh, and we, we are so excited to be here with you and to see what God has in store. Uh, we, we arrived one week ago today, late at night, after a cross-country trek with the kiddos in the back of the car, um, and it went very well. Um, and, and as people have asked, hey, how'd, you know, how'd the drive go? My kind of stock answer has been uh, that the first part went very well, surprisingly. The last leg went even better, because the kids were sleeping for half of it in the back. Um, and we don't really talk about the middle of the trip. Uh, that's just, I've blacked that out. It, was, it got a bit hairy, um, a lot of crying, a lot of tantrums, and that was just me. Uh, seen in the kids, they did, they did great. Uh, but we made it last Sunday, and we are so grateful to be here and thankful for all of the hospitality we've been shown, for everyone who's reached out to us, for those of you who broke your backs for us moving boxes a couple nights ago. Um, thank you. Thank you. We're excited. And I, I deeply believe that God has been at work in this church family uh, and that he has done good and beautiful things and that he is even now continuing to do good and beautiful things um, and that he has good in store. And we are humbled and privileged to get to play a small part in his plans. Uh, as, as I thought about, okay, how, how, might, I, how might I begin? What, what, what might we talk about for the first sermon series uh, of our time here at, at Park? Time and time again, I just kept coming back to Jesus. I, there, there is no one, there is nothing I would rather talk about than Jesus. There is no first impression I would rather leave with anyone other than Jesus. And so this first mini-sermon series that we're going to be walking through is titled Snapshots of Jesus, and we're going to be simply looking at selected stories, teachings, passages from the Gospel of Matthew about Jesus. And, uh, and for this morning, I, I'd like to begin with a brief story. As you heard, I'm, I'm from Washington State, uh, and during the, my college years, I spent two summers working for the county uh, doing road construction, and I, I was a flagger for the county. Yes, you heard that right, a flagger, not a flagger. It's a flagger, you know, the slow go, that person who wears a hard hat and just stands there all day, that was me, uh, working for uh, the paving crew. And the paving crew was, was great because you got a lot of overtime, and not only that, you got to work with the same crew of folks every day. And so you get to know one another, for better or for worse. And, and there was one guy on the paving crew named Carlos. And there are two things you needed to know about Carlos. One, he was one of these guys that, that enjoyed stirring the pot, if you're familiar with that expression. He liked to walk into a group conversation, bring out a grenade, pull the pin, just lob it, and then leave. <laughs> Figuratively speaking, of course. Um, but this is who he is. I'm sure none of you are like that, right? We don't have anyone like that here, but he, he was. Uh, and the second thing you need to know about Carlos is that he was very spiritually minded. Was by no means a Christian, 
uh, would not have at all identified as a follower of Jesus, and yet he, he loved to talk about spiritual things. So we had a ton of conversations that summer. And one day the conversation drifted to Jesus. And as I was talking to him, he, he said, you know what, I just, I just think that Jesus was a really cool dude. I think he was just a really cool dude. And, and while there was part of me that, that appreciated that sentiment, anyone who appreciates Jesus has something in common with me, but, but the minute he said that, I knew, I knew, okay, Carlos really doesn't actually know Jesus very deeply. Because if you were to read the Gospels, just pick up any of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see this pattern. And that is, the more people get to know Jesus, the more people actually listen to his words, consider the claims that he made, observe the way that he treats everyone from the lowest to the highest, it leads toward one of two reactions. Either people hate him, or they love him. It will cause people either to want to kill him or to want to worship him. Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16. If you have your Bibles with you, please open up and turn to Matthew or open up your Bible app and scroll to Matthew chapter 26, 1 through 16. The text will also be on the screen. This is God's word for God's people. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is in two days, two days away, and and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Well, aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asks, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over God's word for God's people. Pray with me. Father, uh, we, we pause now and we give thanks. Thank you for the gift 
of your scriptures. Uh, we, we believe that, that when we read them or when we hear them read, we are reading and hearing your voice speak to us. Please open the ears of our hearts, the ears of our mind. Open our eyes. Help us to see you through your son Jesus more clearly that we might be spurred on toward love and faithfulness. We love you too, Father, and we pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen. Now, it's interesting. Our text begins this morning with when Jesus had finished saying these things, which tells us that right before this passage, Jesus had just said a bunch of things, right? Pretty, pretty basic. And then shortly after that, what we find is Jesus' enemies plotting to kill him. So whatever Jesus said didn't go over super well with, uh, with some of the people listening. You, you could almost imagine uh, some of Jesus' disciples, let's say a, a Peter, he's an easy one, coming up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know that, listen, I'm, I'm on board. I think you're the Messiah. Yay, God's kingdom. But if you're interested in winning friends and influencing people, you might want to consider a different strategy. Or, or at least get a, a speechwriter, you know, someone to just help you think through what you say before you do. He probably sensed the tension, right? So we begin with a plot to kill Jesus. And then we go to the end of the story, and we find the situation quickly intensifying. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve, joins the plot to kill Jesus. Right? And, and we know that Judas was a trusted brother in the band of disciples. We know this because he was the money guy. You don't let anyone, just anyone, take care of the money. You want to make sure that the person who keeps the money is trustworthy. And this was Judas. And we know that Judas knew Jesus really well as well. He had been traveling around with the disciples following Jesus for probably at least three years. He, he had seen the miracles. He probably had most of Jesus' teachings memorized. He saw the way that he treated people. He knew Jesus well. And yet, for whatever reason, here we have Judas joining the plot to kill Jesus. And then... Right in the middle of this story that begins with a plot to kill Jesus and ends with a plot to kill Jesus, we have this wonderful story of this woman. This woman who offers this extravagant display of love and affection. Right? Kill Jesus, love Jesus, kill Jesus. What is it about Jesus that causes people either to love him to the point of, of wanting to worship him or to hate him with a passion. To the point of wanting to kill him. This is the question I'd like us to explore this morning. And, and as I reflect and think about this question, the, the first thing that comes to mind is this, the first observation. Did you notice in this story, Jesus cares more about the internal than the external. Jesus cares more about what's going on in this woman's heart than about what, 
what could simply be observed on the outside. Listen again to verses 8 through 10. And the context again is Jesus at the house of a man named Simon the leper, presumably someone perhaps he had healed, and his disciples. It's a dinner party of sorts. And we don't know if anyone else is there, but then this woman appears, this woman who seemingly wasn't invited. We don't know the full story. And she walks up to Jesus with this alabaster jar of perfume, which Mark, who adds a little bit more details in his telling of the story, tells us was worth over a year's wages. Right? So this little jar, this, this, this isn't the sort of perfume you get at the perfume section at Target. This was worth like an, like an annual salary. Right? She breaks it, Mark also tells us, and just dumps it out on Jesus' head. This is what the disciples say. They were indignant, Matthew tells us. Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money given to the poor. See, the disciples see the external. The disciples look at this woman, they see what she does, and they judge her on the basis of external appearance. And, and let's be honest, there's somewhat of a logic to what the disciples are saying. Like, let's not jump on the, let's just beat up the disciples' bandwagon here. There's a logic to it. I mean, imagine the ministry that could have been accomplished with these financial resources. What if they had sold it? Imagine the hungry people that could have been fed. I mean, think about that. But, but, but overall, what happens is the disciples see the situation and they make a judgment based on external appearance. And do we not do this ourselves? I mean, let's be honest, it's very easy to judge people when we first see them. We all have our own criteria that we use to kind of size people up. In fact, let me ask, and I, this is not a rhetorical question, I want answers, like, what are some of those things that we tend to judge people against? What are some of the criteria that we use when we see people, do we judge them by? Sh shout it out. What's that? Clothing? What else? Maybe that's it, just clothing. What, what was that? Gossip, Gossip. yeah? Hygiene. Hygiene, right. You can tell very quickly if someone smells. I literally put two layers of deodorant on this morning. Just go. Uh, hygiene? Their weight? Education? Yeah, beliefs, politics, social skills, the job, the car, the house. Yeah, yeah, demeanor. We, we have all sorts of criteria that we use when we meet someone or see something by which we judge them. And then comes Jesus. Love Jesus. Je Jesus comes and he does not judge this woman simply based on external observation. He sees straight through to her heart. And, and he calls what she does beautiful. The disciples see this woman and they say, what a waste. Jesus sees what this woman does and he says, why are you bothering her? 
she has done a beautiful thing to me. Beautiful. Jesus just sees things differently. When all we're looking at is external appearance, we forget that there's often so much more to a person's story. We forget this. And, and, and there often is. Uh, my, my friend, we'll call him Isaac, is a good example of this. Isaac showed up one Sunday morning at church. His mom was a regular attender. And, uh, and Isaac, for the first time, showed up. And Isaac was wearing, this particular Sunday, sandals, pajama bottoms, a uh, shirt covered with holes. Um, he, he had an insane clown posse tattoo on his neck and an insane clown posse hat, uh, big ICP fan. Um, and he had, he had most of his teeth, but, but he, didn't, he was in his mid-20s, didn't have a job, didn't have a car, couldn't drive. Uh, and, and when you spoke to him, it, it became very clear very quickly that, that, that there was just something off uh, socially. It was difficult to, to have any sort of a substantive or lengthy conversation with Isaac. And yet he showed up. And then he showed up the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. And, and Isaac was one of these people that when you look at him, he was very, very easy to judge. Very easy to just look, draw some conclusions, and proceed from there. But I had an opportunity to get to know Isaac a little bit, and he kept showing up and kept showing up. And eventually, I got to know a bit of his story. And it, it turned out that when, uh, when Isaac was young, he had gotten in a car accident and suffered a traumatic brain injury, which he still suffered from today, to this day. And, and not only that, but I, I began to learn a little bit about the home life in which he was raised. And I found out that, that uh, Isaac's words, not mine, his grandpa at a young age was the one who taught him how to smoke. His father was the one who taught him how to drink. And his sister was the one who taught him how to do drugs. This was the home in which Isaac grew up. And and Isaac, after spending some time in this particular church community, got to know Jesus. And we got to baptize Isaac and see the Spirit of God begin to work in his life. And, and I began to meet with him regularly. And we began to read through Proverbs together because I figured, okay, Proverbs very clearly lays out this basic reality in life, which is there are two ways to go. There's the path of wisdom, a path that leads toward flourishing life that God wants for all and the path of foolishness. And God is continually inviting us toward wisdom. And I thought this would be a good, a good thing to get ingrained within Isaac. And so he never missed a meeting. He also began serving on our setup team. We met in an elementary school gymnasium. And, uh, and he was always there. He was the hardest worker. And even when he wasn't scheduled, he was there. And one day he approached me and said, Michael, my marriage is on the rocks. And I, I've messed up in big ways, but I want to do better. Will you, will you just meet with me and my wife? And I found out his kids suffered from some pretty severe disabilities. And, and, and you get to know more of his story, and it becomes much more difficult to just look at Isaac and just judge him as he is and write him off. Jesus cares so much more 
about the internal and the external. I, I have a lot to learn when it comes to this church family in the coming weeks and months, but my sneaking suspicion is that woven deep into the DNA of this church family is this impulse, this desire to follow Jesus in this way. This desire to not judge people based simply on their external appearances, but to listen, to hear their stories, to listen to their heart. Don't you love Jesus? Jesus cares more about the internal than the external, and I guarantee you his disciples didn't appreciate that all that much in that moment. Jesus defends this woman's act of extravagant devotion because to him the motives of her heart were far more important than her external behavior. But, but if we take a step back and continue to consider this story, I think we find something else, perhaps even a bit more divisive in Jesus. And it's this. Did you notice that Jesus' response to this woman seems unabashedly self-centered? Not selfish, there's a difference, but unabashedly self-centered. Now, generally speaking, in our culture, when, when someone receives, if you were to receive public affirmation or praise, you, there's this unwritten rule that you're kind of supposed to deflect it, right? You're like, ah, oh, no. Uh, I mean, the quintessential story of this is any time a, a local hero is interviewed, right? You know the story. Some kid falls into a water. A stranger, like, dives in, rescues the kid, saves the day, right? Everyone's excited. Media shows up, and the reporter inevitably finds this hero and says, everyone is saying you're a hero. What do you think? Right? You know that moment? And what does the guy always say? Hey, I'm not a hero, right? I'm not a hero. I'm just a regular guy doing what anyone else would do. And the minute he says that, everyone else is like, that's a hero, right? There's this, there's this unwritten rule in our culture. Because think about it. Someone, if someone ever in a situation like that was like, yeah, you're, you're right. <laughs> I kind of am a hero. Like everyone would be like, well, that's weird. That's kind of cocky. <laughs> Right? There's this unwritten rule. And yet here in this story, did you notice how Jesus responds? This woman performs this worship-like act of devotion to him. Right? Listen to this. And he says again, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor, and remember, Jesus is a, a big fan of caring for the poor. You, you read the Bible, and there's no, there's no bones about it. Like, God displays a preferential treatment for the poor. You cannot take the Bible seriously and not recognize that. And yet here's Jesus, and he says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Who says that? Right? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, yes, this is an insanely extravagant act of devotion of praise, almost worship. And yet, I am worthy of it. I am worthy. 
And I'm here this morning to say that Jesus was worthy then, and he's worthy today. And, And he's inviting each and every single one of us to give everything that we have to him. Whatever it might be this morning that you are holding back from him, whatever it might be, whatever hurdle you find yourself tripping over time and time again, Jesus here this morning is saying, I am worthy. Come, give me everything that you have. Right? Who, who says this? And it wasn't just in this story either. You read the gospel stories, and what you find is Jesus being, again, not selfish, but self-centered in a sorts. As if, as if God's entire cosmic plan of redemption was coming to a point in his very person. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, for example, Jesus had just been raised from the dead shortly before. He's standing there with all his disciples around him, about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And what do his disciples do? They worship him. These are God-fearing Jews who know they are monotheistic. They know there's one God, his name is Yahweh, and he alone should be worshipped. And yet they're worshipping Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, guys, listen, I'm just your rabbi. He takes it. He takes their worship. Jesus, earlier on in the story, claims to have the authority to forgive sins. And not just, not just someone who had happened to interpersonally sin against him, and he was like, hey, I forgive you, man, I know. No, he claimed to be able to forgive sins in general. And everyone knew, everyone knew, only God has the authority to forgive sins. And if you wanted to access God's forgiveness, you had to go through the proper channels. You had to go to the temple and participate in a series of rituals. And here's Jesus gallivanting about the countryside, just forgiving people's sins who come to him, who are convinced that he has something that we all need. Who does Jesus think he is? In John chapter 5, Jesus, responding to the criticism of some of the teachers of the law, some of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus says this to them. He says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. See, Jesus believed that the entire biblical story, the whole sweep of the biblical drama, was anticipating, working toward, pointing toward him. Can you understand why some people were offended by Jesus? Can you understand why these sorts of claims about himself and about God and about the world might lead people either toward running away from him as quickly as possible, hating him, wanting to kill him, or recognizing that, oh my goodness, he is worthy. And laying down their lives for him. Do you understand? Jesus was unabashedly self-centered. Not selfish, but self-centered. And finally this morning, 
briefly, and I think most beautifully. Did you notice in this story that, that Jesus exalts the lowly? Jesus exalts the lowly. You know, we, we live in a culture where a, a beer company will pay $3 million to Arnold Schwarzenegger to appear in a Super Bowl ad. Why is that? Because we live in a cultural moment in a society where they know that we hold Arnold Schwarzenegger at a very popular level in high esteem. He has made it, right? And that, so, so that in some way, when we see a commercial, we'll associate him with this product and maybe, maybe give them our money to buy it. See, we tend to exalt the impressive, the famous, the accomplished, the well-to-do. That's what we do. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. Jesus exalts the lowly. Beautifully so. If anyone in that room did not belong, it was this woman. If there was anyone in that room who was not impressive, it was this woman. And she had three strikes against her. She was a woman. And in the ancient Jewish world, I'm sorry, but that meant you were a second-class citizen. Right? Not only was she a woman, but she approached Jesus, a man, unless this man was your relative. If you were a woman in the ancient Jewish world, it was a very dangerous thing to approach a man. It carried all sorts of improper connotations, and yet, yet this woman felt safe approaching Jesus. In fact, you find this theme throughout the Gospels. Women felt safe approaching Jesus. Jesus, that I could go on a big tangent there, but I won't. But isn't that significant? And finally, this woman did something very embarrassing. She wasted an, a bottle of perfume by just pouring it out on Jesus. This woman had a lot of strikes against her. And yet, it was this woman, it was this woman about whom Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And literally, here we are on the other side of the world, almost 2,000 years later, and who are we talking about? Isn't this beautiful? Like, Jesus exalts the lowly. And, and this tendency of Jesus to do this is a pure reflection of the gospel. Jesus begins his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with these words. Blessed are what? The poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, according to Jesus, citizenship in God's kingdom, entrance into God's kingdom, has a requirement, one requirement you have to realize and understand that you do not deserve to be there. See, when we hear the gospel, when we see Jesus and understand how worthy he is and therefore how unworthy we are, it lowers us to the ground. And then by God's grace, he raises us up to the heavens and adopts us into our fa his family and we realize what it means to be his beloved children. Because this is the sort of relationship into which God invites us. Jesus exalts the lonely. And he invites us to do the same. He invites us to let the kingdom of God redefine what greatness means. 
as we interact with people in our church community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces? What is it about Jesus that causes people to either hate him with a passion to the point of wanting to kill him or to love him deeply to the point of wanting to worship him? Well, surely many things, but at the very least, it's, it's because he cares more about the internal than the external. And may this be true in increasing measure for us. It's, it's because he's unabashedly self-centered. And may we not be self-centered, but be Christ-centered as he was. And finally... It's because he exalts the lowly. And may we, as a community of Jesus followers, continue in this way. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, we, we pause now, and we are so grateful for your son, Jesus. And Father, wherever we find ourselves as individuals sitting here this morning, I, I ask that for anyone who's, who's been running away from Jesus, follower or not, for anyone who's been giving Jesus the, the stiff arm, who, who has been drifting, I, I ask that you would draw them near, that you would move in their hearts, <laughs> that they would see your son Jesus in such a way that would compel them to move toward to recognize that he is worthy and that in him we have life. Father, we are so grateful for today. We are excited about what you have in store. Our heart's desire is that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in Monmouth County as it is in heaven. May we faithfully participate in that process. We love you and we pray in your son's name and by your spirit. Amen.